Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you all this morning. I'm in a little bit of a different role here this morning as I'm going to be preaching God's word rather than singing God's word as I normally do. But I'm grateful for the opportunity, enjoy bringing God's word uh, to, to our congregation. So thankful for this opportunity and thank you that you're here this morning and believe that God has a word for all of us, that he wants to work in our lives and touch us and, and encourage us to continue on in the good fight of faith. Let's pray together as we get into God's word. Lord, as we just sang the song, as we just heard these scriptures and these songs that we've sung, we are reminded that it is all about you, that you are exalted, that we are not exalted. Lord, I pray that you would help us to know and to understand the words that you spoke, Jesus, when you said, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who are bankrupt in themselves. We can't do anything. We can't save ourselves. We can't rescue ourselves. We can't get our lives, you know, together and all that. We, we need Jesus. We need the rescuer. So, Lord, I pray that as we look at your word this morning, as we look at the story of Gideon, help us to see ourselves in that. So often we are held back by fear and oppression, doubt, insecurity. I pray that, Lord, you would open our hearts and open our ears and our minds and our eyes to see all that you'd have us to see in your word, that you'd feed us with your heavenly manna this morning, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've told this to people before, and I've actually thought this to myself as well, but that it was Jesus and music that saved my life. I've shared my story before here in this church, but just a quick recap, when I was 17 years old, as about as low as you could be, filled with all sorts of insecurities and, and doubts about my purpose and value, dis- discouraged, depressed, growing up in a broken home without the presence of a dad around. And it was in that brokenness, in that state, where I was invited to go on a retreat with Young, young Life in my school. It was a weekend retreat in Front Royal, Virginia, about an hour and a half from Washington, D.C., where I grew up. And it was there that I heard the gospel. It was there the first time that I had realized that I was a sinner, that I had a sin-sick disease called, called sin. I had a soul sickness called sin, and then I needed Jesus. The Holy Spirit convicted me. I turned my life over to Christ, and I've never looked back. But it was also music before that, if you will, common grace that preserved me. Because when I was 13 years old, entering into my teenage years, is when I first got my, my first guitar. You see, growing up in the, in the home that I grew up in and, and in a situation that was unstable and, and traumatic, God used a circumstance in my life to draw me into music. My mom had a boyfriend, and he lived with us for a little bit, and he was kind of a hippie kind of guy, kind of like, hey, man, what's up? You know, kind of one of those guys. But he played guitar, and he showed me how to play my first chords, and I was hooked And I convinced my mom to buy me an electric guitar and an amplifier, and I played really loud and really bad in my bedroom until I got better, until I took lessons, and I got into my first band in eighth grade, and then all through high school, I did music. And so I say that music in many ways saved my life because it was God's way of keeping me out of trouble and off the streets because I was around people that were doing really bad stuff. And I could have easily gone down that path. But rather than going out and getting into trouble, I mean, I did that as well, but not like I could have. I went home after school, and I picked up my guitar, and I would play, sometimes until my fingers bled. 
and I would put in my tape cassettes. Remember those? You can go to antique stores now to find a tape cassette. <laughs> I would put in my tape cassettes, and I would listen to my favorite bands over and over again, trying to emulate them, every guitar riff I could, whether it was Eddie Van Halen or Jimi Hendrix or Eric Clapton, whatever it was, I was trying to master their style. And I spent hours and hours. And so what that did is it pulled me out of my little S, my little story, which was filled with uncertainty and pain and, un and trauma and, and instability. It pulled me out of that and brought me into a larger story, a bigger narrative that got me outside of myself. And I had a purpose. I had something that drew me into something that was larger than my life. And for those moments when I was playing my guitar, I forgot about all the pain and all the doubt and all the uncertainty and the fear. And I was swept into a larger story. And let me suggest that is exactly what calling does. You see, calling pulls us out of the pits of life that we get stuck in. We get stuck in ourselves. And we think, oh, I'm the only one that's struggling. I'm the only one struggling with anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress, whatever it may be. I'm the only one. And what calling does is it pulls us out of that into a larger narrative. And then we can see how God can use our struggles, our anxieties, our fears, our issues for a greater good, for his glory, ultimately. And so tonight, uh, this morning, we're going to look at the life of Gideon. Talk about someone who was stuck in a pit. Literally, he was in a pit, isolating himself, cocooning himself from the world around him out of fear. And it was there that God showed up and pulled him out of that pit, gave him a purpose and a value and, and meaning. And that's what I hope to share with you this morning. Pastor Tim has been leading us through 1 Timothy. And one of the main themes that we see in 1 Timothy is calling God has called each and every one of us. We see in 1 Timothy the calling of a pastor, of a deacon, but also of widows and others, ordinary folks like you and I, who are called to do God's work. We're called to be faithful. Every single person is called. Because I think we, we get this idea because our culture says, oh, to be successful, you have to do this. You have to be highly educated. You have to make this much money. You have to have this kind of, you know, portfolio, whatever. And that, that's a problem because in Scripture we see God calls us not based on how we perform. Thank you, Lord. Not based on our merit, not based on our value, not based on our education, but based on our willingness and ultimately his grace and the work of the gospel. And so as a case study this morning, we're gonna look at Gideon. Here's my main thesis for this sermon, my main idea, the big idea. It's never too late to be what God wants you to be. It's never too late to be what God wants you to be. He uses our stories, including the brokenness and the trauma of our stories and our lives, the good parts and the painful parts and the, all that and our talents and our giftings all for his glory to make an impact in the world. It's never too late to be what God has called you to be. People have told me, it's too late for me. I'm, I'm too old or I've done too many bad things. There's no way God would want to use me. Uh, we're gonna look at a man that definitely was not qualified to be used by God. By the way, Every single person in scripture, as we read this morning, as Pastor Spencer led in, in Sunday school, David, 
Moses, whoever it may be, all, quote, unqualified, but God used them. It's never too late to be what God's called you to be. And secondly, it's never too late to do what God has called you to do. Moses was 80 when God called him to do his work to go back to Egypt and deliver the slaves out of Egypt. It's never too late to do what God's called you to do. So with that said, if you want to turn with me, if you have your Bible, you can see on the screen here soon, we're going to look at the book of Judges. So Old Testament this morning, book of Judges, chapter 6, the life of Gideon. Let me give you three points. I try to make it easy, alliteration, all starting with the letter P. The first is presence. Number one is presence. Number two is peace. And number three is persistence. So presence, number one. Number two, peace. Number three, persistence. Let's look at the first point. Number one is presence. Let's go to our text this morning, Judges chapter 6, starting with verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth, which is a certain type of tree, at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Aberazite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. We'll stop right there. We'll keep going here in a minute. Here's the picture. The Midianites were a tribal people, kind of like the Bedouins, if you will, of the Middle East. They traveled by camel, and they were like pirates, the ancient form of pirates. They were marauding. They, were, they would come into the land of Canaan where the, tri- the 12 tribes of Israel were, and they would ravage the land, and they would steal their crops, and they would plunder and pillage. And for seven years, they were oppressing Israel. In fact, the very word Midian means to strive against or to oppress. And that's what they were doing. They were there for seven years, and they would go into the, to the towns and the villages and the, the farm areas, and they would steal all the crops to the point that the people were so scared, that, so scared they were hiding in caves. Seven years of this, they were starving to death, and they finally cried out to God. Now, we have to pull back a little bit and see the bigger context of the book of Judges. After Joshua dies, chapter 1 of Judges, we see the problems begin to happen. You see, God told his people, and Pastor Spencer read this this morning in Deuteronomy, when you go into the land that I promise you, that I promise your forefathers, that I promise Abraham, when you go into that land, drive out all of the inhabitants of that land. And he said, because they will become a thorn or a snare to you. So drive them out. What happens? Joshua dies, and we see in chapter 1 toward the end, it says, but Judah, one of the tribes, did not drive out the inhabitants of the land. But Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in the land. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants who lived in Jerusalem. And Ephraim on it goes, did not drive out. And so as a result, they did not drive them out. They disobeyed God. Chapter two, the Lord says, because you have not listened to my voice, you have not obeyed my commands, I'm going to not only allow the people to be here, but they are going to be against you and they will be a thorn to you. Interesting. It's a parallel to Genesis chapter three in many ways. As a result of Adam and Eve's disobedience and rebellion against God, what did God say to Adam? Because you have done this, now your work will be toil. Thorns and thistles will be your lot. The people of the land that they were supposed to drive out, the land flowing with milk and honey, now became a place of thorns and a snarement to the people of God. 
So God allowed these things to happen. And then what would happen after years of turning away from God and falling into idolatry and worshiping the false gods of these people, the, the gods of Baal and so forth, they would finally cry out to God and God would send a judge. The word judge means uh, shafat in Hebrew, and it simply means one who would plead for another, one who would come alongside of another to govern and to rule and to advocate. The ultimate picture of the book of Judges is that of Jesus Christ, who would become our, our, our ultimate advocate, who would come alongside of us sinners, as Pastor Spencer just read, or just in his prayer said, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Gideon is now to be called as a judge. So let's go back to the text for a second. Verse 11, now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the tree, the terebinth tree of Ophrah. That's a town close to Samaria, an ancient city called Shechem, which belonged to Joash the Abarzite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. So here's the picture. The wine presses would have been used or would have been made out of stone and they would have been placed underground, not like way underground, but maybe a foot or two underground as to keep it cool. And they would, they would bring the grapes there or sometimes the olives there and they would use a certain tool or sometimes even their bare feet and they would crush the olives to make the olive oil or crush the grapes to make the wine. And so what Gideon was doing, because it was somewhat underground, is he was there and he was threshing wheat simply means a process of separating the grain from the chaff, the stuff that's edible versus that which is not. And he was doing that in secrecy, hiding. Why? Because the Midianites were taking all the food and they were starving. The people were starving. And so he's hiding out. So here's the picture of our soon-to-be hero, <laughs> hiding, scared from the Midianites. Verse 12, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Let's stop right there. Imagine what Gideon would have felt and thought. Now, we'll talk about who this angel of the Lord is in a little bit. Gideon did not recognize him at, at first. But first, you see, the, it says, the Lord is with you. Jehovah, or Hebrew, Yehovah, Imcha, Literally, God is with you. That's the Hebrew. Jehovah God is with you. He is literally in your midst. He's right here with you. Jehovah God, the word Jehovah, or Jehovah, means the almighty one or the self-existent one. He's the great I am. This is exactly a similar idea to Exodus chapter 3 when Moses saw this bush burning, yet it wasn't burning, but he saw this glow and this fire and he approaches it, and the Lord, it says, the angel of the Lord, same phrase, speaks to Moses from the bush. It says, I am Jehovah, I am Jehovah God. So he says, the Lord is with you, and then he says, oh, mighty man of valor. Now, get this, this is almost comedic, because here he is hiding in this wine press underground, and he's threshing the wheat, and here comes the angel of the Lord, and he says, not only is God with you, but you are a valiant warrior. Gideon probably laughed, or he at least was kind of like, uh, what? <laughs> it literally means a fighting man. You're a man of warfare. You're a leader. 
you're valiant. Let's see how Gideon responds. Verse 13, and Gideon said to him, please, my Lord. He doesn't recognize who this is. The word Lord there is, is Adonai. That is one of the titles of God, but here it means master. He recognized, I think, that this was someone perhaps in authority or someone important, but had no idea who it was. Please, my Lord, if the Lord, Jehovah, Jehovah, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now, that is present tense, now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hands of Midian. Pastor Tim said something last week I thought it was very, very powerful. He said, we get often caught up in man-centered theology, meaning we get stuck in our own sense of what we think life, how we think life should work out or how we think life should go, and we get stuck in that box. And Gideon was stuck. He was stuck. Literally, he was in a pit threshing wheat, and I think metaphorically he was in a pit, if you will, stuck in this fear and doubt, because what does he say? He says, if, note the, 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 the word there, if, in, with, in, with his doubting there, if the Lord is with, with us, then why has all this happened? And we've done the same thing. Okay, if God is really with me, then why is this happening? Why is this taking place? Or why did I have to go through this? Why did I have to go through this when I was growing up? Why did my loved one, my spouse, leave? Why are my kids not turning out this way? Because I think what we do, and this is where we get stuck in this man-centered theology, what we do is we think, if I am faithful to God, if I give myself to the Lord and I'm, I'm going to church and I'm tithing, I'm doing the things I'm supposed to do, then life should go and work out a certain way, right? A plus B equals C. In other words, Hey, God, I'm, wor- I'm on your team. I'm working for you, so do this for me. We bargain. We negotiate. And that's exactly what Gideon's doing. He said, if, if, if God is really with us, then why is this happening? Gideon was stuck, and we get stuck too. Further, he says, and where are all of his wonderful deeds? So why and where? So If God is with us, then why is this happening? And then where is all the stories that I've heard? Maybe you've said that too. I have, right? We've all said that in some degree. Well, I've heard all these great things about God doing this in this person's life and doing this in this person's life. This person, you know, God just miraculously touched and they're cancer-free or whatever it may be. But why, why not me? Or why not this person? Again, we have a certain way we think life should work out because our culture tells us that if you work really hard and you perform very well, get the grades, do well in whatever skill or craft that you're focused on, then you're going to get the prize. You're going to get scholarships. You're going to get uh, the, the position on the team. You're going to get whatever it is you want. And we're taught that in our culture. Work hard, A plus B equals C. Not the case when it comes to faith. Not the case when it comes to the gospel. Because Jesus said, in this life you'll have much trouble. But take heart, he says. I have overcome 
this life, this world. I've overcome this world. But we get stuck like Gideon. Why and where? And then Gideon goes further and says, but now, this is the present reality Gideon is saying. Now the Lord has forsaken us. He makes an indicative statement basically saying he has done, he's left us, right? And all of us have felt that at times. God, I'm doing my best here, trying to be faithful. Why is there no breakthrough? Why is this person still struggling with addiction? I've been praying so long and so hard. Why is this happening in my marriage? I've been praying so hard and so long. Why is this happening with my kids? Whatever it may be, why is this happening in my job? I thought this was the the dream job or whatever it may be. And we get stuck in the why and the where. Verse 14, and the Lord turned to him and said, let's stop right there. Verse 14 is very significant. It says, and the Lord, Jehovah, Jehovah, who is speaking to Gideon? The Lord God. You see throughout the Old Testament, you see the phrase of the angel of the Lord. You see it in, in um, Genesis chapter 22 when Abraham was called to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. And it was a major test. And he says that the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, do not do this, Abraham. Do not strike your son. You see it also in Exodus chapter three, where it says the angel of the Lord spoke from the burning bush. The angel of the Lord simply means Jehovah. Some scholars think it could have been the pre-incarnate Christ. Even some of the church fathers say that. Perhaps it was the Son of God appearing before he came to the earth as the Messiah. But we know, based on the text, based on the Hebrew, that it's very clear. It says, and the Lord. And this is a wonderful idea here. It says, and the Lord first turned to him. The Hebrew word is panim. It means literally turned his face toward Gideon. God's face toward Gideon. He turned his gaze, his attention his presence onto him and then said. The word said there is the same word in Genesis chapter 1, 3. Chapter chapter 1 of Genesis verse 3 where it says, and God said or God spoke, let there be light. God turns his presence, his face toward Gideon and then he speaks and he says, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? He gives him a command. Go, just like Moses. This is very similar to Exodus chapter 3. God reveals his presence. Moses is to take off his sandal. sandals. He's, in, he's, in, he's at unholy ground. God says, I am Jehovah. I am the exist, existing one. I am, and I'm sending you, right? Same with Gideon. I'm sending you. Go in the strength that you have. Do I not commend? Am I not sending you is the idea. Now, just like Moses, just like Jeremiah, and just like us, he had excuses. Well, wait a second, God. Wait, wait a second. Hold the bus, right? Wait a second. I don't know about this. Moses had that excuse. I can't speak well, Lord. And God said, okay, I'll send your brother Aaron to go with you. Jeremiah had that excuse. Lord, I'm too young. I can't preach your word. I can't proclaim to the nations or or to, to to your people the word of God. And the Lord said, I'm calling you. Verse 15, 
And he said, this is the Lord, said to him, to Gideon, please, I'm sorry, this is Gideon speaking to the Lord, excuse me. He said, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. There's the excuse. Gideon was a man filled with fear, just like you and I. He had all the excuses. I can't do that. There's no way. There's no way I can do that. He says, first of all, I am part of the weakest clan. Manasseh, by the way, we're all starving to death around here, but my particular people, this particular tribe, is the least of the least. We're the weakest. We're the most scared, (laughs) right? And secondly, he says, and I am the least in my father's house. I'm nothing. I have no no status. I have nothing to offer you. And that's what we do, right? We tend to think, because we grow up in a performance culture, we tend to think, well, I don't, there's nothing I can do, God. I can't offer you, what, I, I'm not gifted in this. I can't do this. I can't do that. We make all the excuses of what we can't do. And what does God say? Get out of the way. It's not about you. It's about me working through you, right? And that's what he said, verse 16. And the Lord said to him, but... I will be with you. That should be enough, right? I will be with you. It's not about what you can do. It's your willingness to obey me and trust in me, knowing that my presence, the fact that I turn my face to you and I'm calling you, that should be enough. But I will be with you. And then he follows up and says, and you shall strike the Midianites. Again, the word Midian means to strive against or to oppress. You shall strike the Midianites as one man. That goes back to his calling originally in verse 12. Mighty man of valor, you will strike this enemy as if you're going against one particular man, a one-on-one battle, right? That's how I'm going to use you. You would think that that would have been enough for Gideon. But again, he has doubts. But let me give you the application. I've got two applications for this first point for presence. Number one, consider how significant God's presence is, especially in times of fear, uncertainty, hopelessness, and even our own sinfulness, that God calls us not because we're worthy of that call, but God calls us because he wants to use us for his glory and for our good. It's the opposite of what the world teaches. The world says you are significant because of how much money you make. You are significant by how beautiful you are. You are significant by how, what kind of house you live in, right? Especially in the Western culture that we live in. It's the opposite. It's the opposite. God calls us because he's called us, because he's God. And he uses the weak things, it says in 1 Corinthians, to shame the wise. The least, he says, blessed are, Jesus, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. And, but our natural bent, inherited by Adam, is to hide, like Gideon. Maybe that's why I can relate to Gideon so well, because that's what I do, that's what we all do. We hide in these little cocoons, and we're like, oh, I'm, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think I can really trust God with this. I don't think I can step out in faith in this way. 
I just, I don't know. I, I, there's too many things I've done. And we get stuck in our little S, our little story. What did Adam and Eve do? After they turned against God and rebelled against him, they hid. They hid. What did God do? He pursued. He pursued. You know, when the Lord called me to preach God's word, to be a pastor, I was running like a crazy man, like Jonah, because I didn't grow up in a Christian family. I didn't have the, the, the tools. Like a lot. I went to a small Christian college in the Midwest, and I was kind of, not kind of, I was extremely overwhelmed going to chapel three times a week, singing songs that I never heard before, being in Bible classes, feeling like I am way out of my element here. And it was my freshman year. I was a music major because that's what I loved and what I knew was music. And it was my freshman year that the Lord called me to preach and I could not shake it. Every single day I'd read something, I'd hear something that reminded me, I'm calling you to this, calling you. I'm like, Lord, there's no way. I remember when I called my mom and told her and she almost probably, I, I heard silence on the phone. Like she probably fell over. <laughs> I'm like, mom, you okay? Uh, God called me to be a pastor. I mean, it was like the most unlikely thing, and not in a million years. But when God calls us, he calls us. But guess what? It's not about being a pastor. It's about being faithful to what you've been called to, because every single one of you is called. You just got to get out of the pit. You got to get out of your self. You got to get out of the way and be brought up and drawn into the larger story his narrative, his redemptive work. The second application is that God calls us even in spite of our stuckness, even in spite of our fears, our insecurities, our anxieties, and all the issues that we have. And we have plenty and plenty and plenty and plenty of issues. What does it say? The Lord said to Gideon, he said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of many. Go in this might. In other words, go in the might that you have, your personality, your hopes, your dreams, your gifts, your talents, go in that. Because guess what? You're the only you there is in this world. I'm the only me that there is in this world. God gives us the personality that he's given us, the gifts he's given us, the talents he's given us, the fears and the hopes and the dreams, all that we have, all that makes us us, and says, now go and be faithful to do what I've called you to do. We tend to think, well, I, I can't do this until I do this. I have to go get more education. Education's good, right? I have, to, I have to cross over this way. No, God says to Gideon, go in the might you have. In other words, in the personality and all that you have in yourself, go. For not, am I not calling you? Do, not, do I not send you? Number two, my second point is peace. First, we have uh, presence, and this is the principle of this. When you know that the Lord is with you, when you know that he's turned his face toward you and he's calling you to be faithful to whatever he's calling you to do, that results in peace. You know you're doing what God's called you to do when you have a peace. Not when things are going smooth and things are like glass and kind of like, you know, chirping birds in your, in your ears and all that, fun, happy times. But rather, you know that you have a peace that surpasses all understanding, as it says in, Colossians, in Philippians, that guards our hearts and mind. And you see that with Gideon. God gives him his peace. Let's see how Gideon responds. Let's go back to the text, verse 17. 
And Gideon said to him, if now I have found favor, interesting, the word favor there is grace. It's the Hebrew word for grace, which we then in the New Testament see grace, undeserved favor, undeserved merit. If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it's you who speak with me. I think Gideon's mind was trying to unscramble everything. Like, okay, is this, is this God? Is this like what happened to Moses? <laughs> it feels very similar, but I don't know. He's, quite, he's not quite there yet. He's not quite certain that it really is Jehovah. So he sets up a test. He says, if I found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign, a miraculous sign, that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from me or depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present. The word present there means offering, to bring an offering to you. And I set it before you. And he, that is the Lord, said, I will stay till you return. Verse 19, so Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from, cakes from an ephah, a flower. That would have been like a, a bushel, maybe half. He was poor because of the situation with the Midianites. They didn't have a lot, and he didn't have a bull, or he didn't offer a bull, which he probably should have, and we'll talk about that later, because the bull was significant because that meant you were worshiping Baal, the false god. They would offer sacrifice. They would sacrifice a bull because Baal represented the bull, which represented fertility and prosperity and blessing. But Gideon gets a young goat and some flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth, the tree, and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that, he, that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. So here we have a picture of the Lord revealing himself and his divinity to Gideon. The rock represents an altar because in that pagan world that they lived in, they would use altars, they would sacrifice the bull to Baal, this false god, for prosperity, for rain, fertility, and all that. And so here the Lord has Gideon sacrifice this goat on the rock, and it says, and fire sprang up from the rock. Fire is very significant. Again, you have to think about how this would have translated it in Gideon's mind, Moses, with the burning bush. Later on, way later down the road, you'll see Elijah, going up against the, the prophets of Baal. Baal's still in the picture after all these years because why? The people of God did not drive out the enemies out of their land like they were supposed to. They were disobedient. And so Elijah has a showdown on Mount Carmel. And what does God do? Consumes the altar with fire. Fire is very significant. And it says the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. In other words, that he was Jehovah, Jehovah. He was the God who spoke to Moses, the God who spoke to Abraham, the I am. And Gideon said, alas, which is a very strong statement. It's like a, an emotional response, like, oh man, oh man, alas, oh Lord God, Adonai, 
Yehovah. He recognizes Adonai, master, the Lord, in the proper sense, and then says, Jehovah. He says, you are God. And then he says, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. You better believe that Gideon in that moment, when he, when he went, oh, alas, he thought he was doomed because a man cannot see God's face, God's glory. Remember the Mount Sinai situation with Moses? God said to Moses, if the people come close to this mountain, if they touch this mountain, they will die. <laughs> this is serious because God is so holy. But God in his grace reveals himself to Gideon in the form of a man and he says, you shall not die. Don't fear. Think about Jesus. How often did Jesus say that? Do not be afraid. Why? Because we are a fearful bunch. We're afraid. That's why the Bible says we're like sheep. All like sheep have gone astray. Sheep are afraid. That's why they need a shepherd. They're afraid. That's why we need a shepherd. Jesus said to his disciples over and over again, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you, praise God, I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your heart be troubled. This is, Matt, this is John 14, 27. Do not let your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Why? Because our natural bent is fear. And that always results because we're trying to make life work the way we think life should work. And life doesn't work the way we think or the way we think it should work. And the Lord has a way of, of coming into our lives and speaking into our, our, our situation, our circumstance, and saying, I am with you. Do not be afraid. It's going to be okay. Verse 24, then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord, to Jehovah, and called it, the Lord is peace. In the ancient world, they would build altars when significant things happened as to remember. So when people walk by, they can say, oh yeah, this is the place. Just like with Jacob at Bethel. This is the place that God revealed himself to Gideon and saved us from the oppression of Midian. And so he built an altar. The Lord is peace. Literally, Yehovah, Shalom, or Jehovah God is Shalom, is peace. And to this day, it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Eberzites. Let me give you my application for my second point under peace. Even in our doubts regarding our calling and purpose, because every single one of us doubts that we've been called, that God wants to use our lives, that we have something significant that he would want to use to make a difference in this world. In spite of our doubts about calling and purpose and value, God is not only patient with us, but he offers us his peace. How patient was Jesus with his disciples? Just when you think they were getting it, they were arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom. Just when they, you think they were getting it, they weren't, and they all dispersed and left him alone when the Romans came into the garden at, during that, that fatal night, during the Passover on the Thursday before he was crucified on Friday. But yet, in spite of that, he is so patient with our struggles and our doubts. And so we see here in Gideon that the Lord is peace. 
Do you want to have peace in your life? The world says, oh, just have peace. Just get along, right? True peace comes from knowing that the Lord is with us and that he's called us. He's called us to himself. And when you know that, even when it's not all spelled out and when it's very scary and you're not sure what that means, but you have peace because I'm exactly where the Lord wants me to be. And that's what Gideon felt. And that's what we feel too. And we know when we trust him in that way. The question is, and here's what we're going to see for Gideon, is are we willing to obey and take a step out in faith even though, even though we're called and we have that peace? Are we willing to take that step? And that's my third point, number three, is persistence. So, so far we've seen presence, that God is present with us, even with our questions of why and where and all of our doubts. He's he gives us peace in that calling, reminding us that he is with us and that he is the Lord of peace. And number three is persistence. The definition of persistence is this, firm or obstinate continuance in a course of action in spite of difficulty or opposition. In other words, perseverance. Persistence means that you are in spite of, of difficulty or opposition, that you're going to resolve, that you're going to, to go this route no matter what. And that's what we see here. Gideon is tested in his calling. Verse 25. That night, so this is all in one particular day, this all happened. And that night, the Lord said, again, very, very powerful here in the Hebrew text. It's reminiscent of Genesis chapter 3. And God said, God spoke, let there be light. God said, God said, the Lord said to Gideon, take your father's bull. Let's stop right there. I don't want a goat. That was easy. I want a bull. Why? Because bulls represented the pagan idolatry of that day. A bull was sacrificed to Baal. It meant when you sacrifice the, the bull and the prophets and the people uh, that worship Baal, including the Israelites, sadly, like Gideon's own family, his own father, it meant as the, the meat was burning and it was wafting in the air, it meant, Baal, take this sacrifice and give us rain. Give us prosperity. Bless us with children. Right? And so for the, the Lord to say to Gideon, go to your father's house and take a bull, that was a bold, bold statement and a bold move. Take your father's bull and then the second bull, seven years old. This is like the, the, the extra bull. This is for like an extra offering, <laughs> something significant perhaps. Most likely he had two bulls and pull down the altar of Baal. The word pull down literally means to tear it down, destroy it. His father's house, most likely they had some land, even though they were a weaker tribe. And in that particular land, they had an area for worship where they had an altar and they had what was called Asherah poles, most likely a sacred pole or sometimes it was a tree. And they would worship around the pole and they would sacrifice to Baal. This is what they would do. And he says, go and pull down tear down the altar of Baal that your father has. This is Gideon's own dad. And then cut down the Asherah, that is the Asherah pole that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold. The stronghold would have been a, like an altar, a rock altar. And literally build an altar to me, 
right on top of this pagan idolatry. Talk about a bold move and a risky move. His own dad going against their false religion. And it says that build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull. So this is two bulls here. This is the whole thing, right? Two bulls. Take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah pole. That is, with, as you cut down this Asherah pole, this sacred pole to this false god, as you cut it down, use that wood for the offering that you shall cut down. Verse 27, so Gideon took 10 men of his servants. Imagine how that conversation went down, right? Um, hey, guys, I need your help with something. Oh, yeah, what is it, Gideon? We don't know, but imagine. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. Just like Abraham did what God had told him when he said, go and sacrifice Isaac. Just like Noah. Hey, Noah, I want you to build an ark. Right? Hey, Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt, the place that you left 40 years ago, a place of misery and oppression. I want you to go back. I'm calling you. And he did as the Lord told him. So Gideon did. But, see that there, that but there. But because he was too afraid, and there's an emphasis there, he was much afraid. Gideon had a lot of fear. He was too afraid of his family and the men of the town they, to do it by day. He did it by night. Most likely, very late at night, under the cover, so no one knew what was going to happen. His dad was asleep. Town was asleep. He was scared. Now, lest we be too harsh with Gideon, at least he did it, right? Just like Peter. We, we tend to be like, oh, Peter. He gets out of the boat. And he walks on water. But then what did he do? He took his eyes off Jesus, and he sinks down. And he cries out, Lord, save me. But at least he got out of the boat. Often you and I just sit in the boat. Oh, yeah, you do it. I'm not, heck no, I'm not going out there in that water. Peter's like, I'll go. I love that about Peter. Did he sink down? He did. Why? Because of fear. But you know what? We got to get out of the boat, folks. We get stuck in a boat or in a little hole that we get. We, we cocoon ourselves and say, you know what? I'm comfortable right here. I don't want to step out. I want to be in my little box. Guess what God wants to do? Break that box. He wants to crush that box. And he says, go. Get out. Trust me. We like to... We like the, the Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. We like that. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. But I think we struggle with and lean not on our own understanding. We struggle with that. We, we lean a lot on our own understanding. A whole lot. So Gideon, at least he stepped out, even though he was very afraid. So here's my final application. Calling does not equal ease. It does not mean things are going to go smooth or well at times, but it means that you're surrendered and you say, Lord, I'm going to be what you want me to be and I'm going to do what you want me to do. And we do it. We are surrounded by oppression right now, folks. Many nights, many nights within, many nights without. But in that, God calls us. So if you find yourself in a pit this morning, maybe you're feeling very low. Maybe you struggle with depression. You struggle with anxiety. 
You struggle with, with dark thoughts. You struggle because you're not sure if your marriage is gonna make it. You're not sure if your kids are gonna make it. You're not sure if this person that you love is gonna get out of, get out of addiction. And you're in that pit of fear. Take heart. God is present. He calls you right where you're at. He says, I am with you. I see you. You're mine. And I want to use you. The question is, are you willing to cut down the Asherah poles and the false altars that you build? We all build altars. We all have these, these Asherah poles and these altars that we build, little cocoons that we say, you know what? This is my security just in case, just in case God doesn't come through. We got to cut that down, folks. Got to cut that down. And we have to be all out and say, Jesus, I trust you with my marriage. I trust you with my kids. I trust you with this job situation. I trust you, trust you with this very, very difficult emotional problem that I'm struggling with or a physical problem. I'm gonna give it to you. Psalm 40, verse two, I'll end with this. David says, he drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock. Security, making my steps secure. We have to, Resolve and then re-resolve over and over again and say, Lord Jesus, would you set me upon the rock, you? I'm struggling in this pit. I'm cocooning myself again. I'm pulling back again. Would you pull me out? You gotta do that again and again. And I hope that you do. And I hope this encouraged you this morning. Let's pray together and then we'll sing one last final song and then I'll come back up to dismiss us. Lord, we're so thankful for your grace. Gideon's life is smothered in grace, and so is ours. And we're grateful that our calling does not depend on our skills or our abilities or how much we've got life figured out, but rather completely and solely on you. You spoke to Gideon. You called him out of the pit. You established him, and he was obedient to cut down the altars of false gods as he was called to do. Help us to do the same. Help us to do the work of cutting down the altars that we have built. Help us to get out of the pit that we so often fall in. I pray for every person in here, whether they're struggling with depression or anxiety or a physical ailment or a, a marriage situation or family situation, that you would help them to see that there is hope. You reach down and you pull them out. Just like when Peter sank down in the water, you did not let him drowned. You pulled them out and you said, oh, ye of little faith, help us, Lord, I pray. Direct our thoughts, we ask. We thank you for this time, this word. Bless us as we sing this song in Jesus' name. Amen.